I just didn't realize how difficult it is for people to get there. All we have to do is just get a reboot done. Just need to reboot the computer and everybody's capable of living this life. We can live with that peace. All right. Well, we are here today on the Gravity Podcast with Dr. Don Wood of the Inspired Performance Institute. And uh, I'm really happy to have you here. I'm, I'm curious to kind of get into this with you. I've worked with you now, so I, I know firsthand from uh, what you do, about what you do and the experience of that. And we'll talk about my experience with you uh, as we get further into the show. But thanks for joining me here today. Well, I've been looking forward to it after we met and we talked about doing a podcast. I thought, oh, this would be great. So I'm looking forward to doing this today with you. Yeah, great. Well, before we dive into the work that you do today and the work that I've done with you, let's talk a little bit about your 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 journey to that work. Let's talk about kind of and, and I know, you know, you've shared with me your your story into how you specifically got into the work that you're doing today. We'll talk about that, but I, I'm more curious to kind of start at the beginning. You know, you and I were just talking before we got on the air here, uh, just how profoundly impactful the childhood experience is on our lives. Um, this is the work that you do. And and I'm learning more and more about that from this podcast and from my own personal work. But, you know, you, you're studied in this, you know this. Let, let's first talk about your own childhood as we start to, you know, kind of uh, tug on the threads of the journey of your life. Well, you know, one of the things that I didn't realize until I really started doing this research was how fortunate I was to grow up in this idyllic childhood. I didn't realize, I thought everybody sort of lived this life and that everybody had my parents. My parents were the most calming influence you could ever imagine. They never yelled, never raised their voice. They were calm pretty much all the time. And so my nervous system as a child was constantly being regulated. So, you know, I could get bumped every once in a while, you know, if something happens at school or with a friend or whatever, but I'm coming back into this loving, nurturing home. So my system would just automatically go back into homeostasis because I felt safe. So my home was a very, very safe environment for me. And that is critical. Just what you were talking about, Brett, with childhood. If you don't have that place, that safe place, right? The world is a very, very different place for, for most children growing up. The home needs to be the safe place. I grew up with that. And I assumed all my friends did because I didn't see the dysfunction going on in their homes because everybody's on their best behavior. You know, if I show up at their house, you're not going to see if the father's, you know, dysregulated. Everybody's going to try to be on their best behavior. But behind the scenes is where everything would then start showing up. And my friends were living in, you know, with emotional, physical, sexual abuse that I wasn't even aware of. And it wasn't until even just, you know, not that long ago that I started finding out that, Two of the principals at our school were molesting kids. You know, some of the teachers, the guy who ran the Little League for 35 years, all my friends were being affected by it and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So that's a very fortunate place for me to be. And then when I met my wife, that's when I really, that was the first real eye-opening experience for me was realizing that she did not grow up in the world that I was growing up in. 
And I didn't notice it immediately in the beginning. I just assumed, you know, father looked to be okay. Everybody seemed to be okay. But I started as I was around the family a lot more, I started noticing that something just didn't feel right. There was a tension that I wasn't sort of used to. And everybody, what I discovered was that the children, everybody in that family were terrified of him. He was just a real nasty person. And so when I first met him, I didn't see it. It wasn't until I got really involved in the family that I realized that this guy was running the house with complete terror. And that was the first time I really saw that in a household. And it was very foreign to me. It's interesting because you go through your whole childhood. And, you know, I've actually been talking about this pretty regularly on our podcast because it's been really showing up for me as uh, a really consistent theme, one with some real meaning that there usually is these kind of two different paths where people do grow up in these kind of, you know, maybe not ideal, but uh, in households where there's a lot of unconditional love. And then there's this other path where there's some sort of traumatic event. And, you know, it's not always that black and white. You know, there can be the dog on the playground that barks at a child or, you know, that, that you know, has some sort of imprint of, of fear or, or an emotion that, you know, regardless of what's going on in the household, those things happen too. But you do kind of hear these two paths and, you know, then kind of life happens as a result. And none of them are mean that you're destined for one thing or the other. It's just that, you know, it can really set the the, the tone for how your you know your childhood goes and and your early adult life and and it can set the tone for your entire life if there's not some awareness around this right oh absolutely and you can have two children growing up in the same household that will respond differently to the same environment so it's not complete so my my wife and her sister had sort of different approaches they were experiencing the same kind of stuff going in that household. But my wife's uh, grandmother was very influential on her. She had a very strong spiritual Christian belief. And my wife sort of gravitated towards that, believing that there would be something better coming along. Her sister became very bitter and angry. And um, so they both had the same grandmother, but one gravitated more towards her than the other one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, in your case... You know, you have this kind of, you know, idyllic chi childhood, you know, with, with, you know, these wonderful parents and this, you know, life of, of, you know, what appears to be kind of trauma free and, and, you know, and, and really nice. So what does that look like for you? What, what do you, what kinds of stuff are you into and, and kind of what are you studying or where are your interests or tell me a little bit more about what you do with that, that foundation. Well, like I said, as I was growing up, everything was just sort of pretty easy for me. Um, I was a very good student, so I was sort of a straight-A student. I played sports. I was a really good athlete. And so because I was sort of growing up in that, it just felt very simple and easy. And it wasn't that I didn't get bumped every once in a while, but nothing big T kind of trauma. That's why I wrote my second book called Emotional Concussions. Everybody has some of those, these little concussions you get. You know, I had six physical con concussions from playing hockey, but the, these emotional concussions could be, you know, friends that 
aren't sincere or aren't truthful or, you know, talk behind your back, all those kinds of things. And I remember my mother discussing those things with me and, you know, I never really understood her message at that time, but she just basically said, well, they're just jealous. And that Mm. never seemed to satisfy me. I didn't like Mm -hmm. that. I go, why would they be? Because I didn't have any kind of jealousy in me. But again, what I didn't understand is that they're going through a whole bunch of trauma, right? Mm. So of course, I look like everything's just swimmingly and they don't like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and, And I'm guessing that, you know, you've kind of arrived at this this, well, I actually don't want to guess, you know, I'm curious, you know, about having grown up in the experience that you had, the way that you just described kind of the jealousy, for example, you know, not understanding how somebody else might be based on their own experience, yours being so different. How how do you really kind of um, feel about that now that, you know, you understand what other people are going through more. In other words, you know, I think sometimes if you don't have the experience, you just kind of arrive at some sort of judgment, right? Or some sort of uh, wronging of that individual. They're a jealous person, right? And it can get a lot worse than that. I mean, it can be, they're a criminal, they're bad, they're this, that, and the other, right? But there's more to that story, uh, always. And I'm just wondering kind of how you reconcile that. Well, at the time, I really didn't have a true understanding. So of I was course, judgmental right? as well. You okay. know, a couple of my friends got into alcohol and drugs and I've never touched a drop of alcohol, never touched a drug in my life. And so to me, it was just like, well, you know, what's wrong with them? What kind of character, you know, can't they just, you know, suck it up and get, and get through that? I didn't understand what they were dealing with. And now after all this research and everything I've done, I have a completely different approach to that. And so, you know, as I call their atmospheric conditions. So if they grew up in these very dark, stormy atmospheric conditions, they're going to be responding differently to life than I will. And so now I have a much better appreciation and understanding of what they experienced and why they're behaving the way they are. Mm -hmm. That's life changing. Mm -hmm. And it really was for me because now I view it completely different and I see people who are struggling with those things and I have a lot more compassion for them and understanding. But the great part about it is it can be fixed. Mm -hmm. They They don't have to be stuck in that loop. Yeah, And that's really what our program figured out. Yeah. And, and I want to just kind of follow up on that a little bit and get we'll get back to kind of your journey to the work. But I'm wondering, oftentimes people feel like uh, life is a matter of choice and making good decisions versus bad decisions or choosing what you want versus something else. I think it's a lot more complex than that. And maybe, you know, at the end of the day, it is about choice. There's always choice. But for some reason, myself included, we will make choices that are not maybe in our best interest or the thing that we actually want out of habit, out of ease, out of some unconscious thing. Can you just speak a little bit to the kind of complexity? Of all of this, you know, it just to me, it feels so complex when you start thinking about, you know, uh, uh, the 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 
concussions as you as you called them you know that even the obviously the capital t stuff is pretty straightforward like big t trauma that's going to have an impact but all the little kind of micro traumas along the way that get embodied that end up becoming part of how we live it's so complex to me i think but tell me what you think i, I absolutely agree it is a complex thing because it's a series your mind actually filters through a lot of your life's experiences. And because it does that, it uses that as a resource to try to determine how to respond to what's happening now. So it's basically going through this information. So if you've had a lot of dark, stormy events and experiences in your life, you can see why your mind would default to more of a survival mode or towards more of a negative bias. And of course, it's going to happen. So I always say it this way when we talk about choice, because I had, you know, this very, very nurturing, loving home, I think about it in terms of if you played cards, I got dealt a bigger deck. So if I've got 12 cards in my hand and somebody else got, has five cards in their hand, they still have a choice, but they have a choice between the five cards. I have a choice between 12 cards. So, of course, my choice is going to be a lot easier, right, to make better choices. So, if you constantly have been dealing with sort of a shorthand, things aren't as easy for you because your mind is going to default towards that. I've only got so many cards. I've only got so many options because you haven't experienced anything differently. I did. I experienced life being pleasant and being loving and nurturing. Now, because of my friends with that sort of jealousy, what I did sort of come out of that with was more of a guarded approach to friendships. And what I found, and this is sort of, again, this is something, another realization, that I had the guy, my friends that I played hockey with, but I never hung out with them outside of hockey. I had my school friends that I hung out in school with, but I never hung out with otherwise, and tennis. Those are my three activities. All three of those groups of friends never met each other. I became very, very cautious of intermixing them. I didn't know I was doing that, but it wasn't until I really started looking at how my life developed. And I think that came from that sense of, I don't want you know, that connection because it brings in you know, maybe more judgment from their side. Yeah, I, well, I'm also a tennis player, so um, you know, I'll I'll kind of gravitate to that comment. The inner game of tennis. Do you do you know that book? Um, no, I there's, a, heard that. there's a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. It was referred to me by a, a good friend of mine who's a, a manages and 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 was a professional tennis player, and it's really all about kind of just letting the instinct take over and how coaches often will fill your head with way too many things to be working on and too many things to be thinking about and the kind of freedom that actually is is required to play at your best and and I'm kind of thinking about your experience and the you know support that you had around you your family unit and I'm wondering, you know, kind of how that impacted your life, including, you know, as an athlete, just having the kind of what feels like freedom to just play and be without having to 
you know, kind of sort through all the stuff in your head. Is that, is that true? Is that kind of how it was for you? Yeah, I, I really do believe that. So in sports, like you said, you play tennis. I truly believe, I, I worked with a professional baseball player as well. And one of the things that they were doing was trying to get him to analyze all the different pitchers and what this guy throws on a two-in-one count, what this guy throws on a three-in-one count. They were filling his head with all this data. And his agent asked me, what do I think of that? And I said, I don't like it. You can't think and hit a baseball. You have built a series of codes in your brain that your mind filters through. And it recognizes a pitch coming from that height with that spin, with that speed is going to end up on average in this spot. That's not thinking. That's basically subconscious. And the best players are playing like that. And the faster you can process that information, the better. If you add in a whole bunch of data to that process, you're slowing down what you can instinctively do. So I think yeah. you're right, right, spot on. And, and that's what I experienced. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your experience. So you, you, you go through your early childhood, your, your young adult years, kind of with this, it sounds like there's like a confidence that emerges and, and kind of a freedom to just, you know, perform and be and, and kind of enjoy, go through life. Tell me about it. What, what happens um, for you as you start to move through, you know, into young adulthood? Well, it's one of the things I wrote in my first book. And I, I again, worked with a professional golfer and I said to him, do you think you need to be confident to play good golf? And he said, well, yeah, I think so. And I said, what if I told you you didn't need to be confident to play good golf? And he says, well, I don't need confidence. I said, well, I didn't say that. What I said was confidence is a byproduct of your skill. If you build your career based on the fact that I need to be confident to play good, your confidence is going to come and go. I says, what I did is I developed an attitude of optimism. I was so optimistic about life that things could go wrong for me. I could get bumped every once in a while, but they were going to get back on track. So I said, so if you're 150 yards out from the green, you're going to hit a nine iron. He goes, right. I says, but you don't know that the wind is starting to come down the fairway when you hit it. I says, now the ball gets knocked down into the bunker. So what's going to happen to your confidence if that happens three or four times during your round? It's going to start to fade and your mind's going to go into, uh-oh, something's wrong. I'm making mistakes. As opposed to, I said, I want you to develop an attitude of, no problem, ball's in the bunker. I'm a great bunker player. I may even be able to hold this. I says, your confidence will build with your skill. And I says, but optimism will always carry you through. And I believe that that was what really worked for me. And it was because I'm living in this great world, I was very optimistic that everything would just work out for me. And it Mm. generally did most of the time. Mm, Interesting. So what what does that look like? What did you get into as you started to kind of advance into college and your early career? Again, just playing the two sports that I played were tennis and and hockey. Tennis was sort of the second sport. I got a chance to play or not teach professionally when I was 16 because my mentor, who was my tennis coach, had a nervous breakdown and I ended up taking over all his lessons. So it was a great experience for me because at 16, I was making a lot of money. (laughs) And at the same time, it affected my tennis game because now I'm on the court too much. 
Mm. And then hockey, I had a chance to play professional hockey in Sweden. That's how I met. I didn't meet my wife because of that. But when I met my wife, that's when I was offered that, that contract. And so we got married very young. We got married at 19. Mm-hmm. And so sports had played such a big role in my life. And um, that was really what I was focused on. I wanted to be a professional hockey player and focused on that. Tennis was just a great sport for teaching me so much about life. Mm-hmm. I, I really look back on my, the sports that I played and I realized that I learned a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the mentor of mine, he said to me one time, I was about 13, 14, and he said to me, you want to really be a great tennis player, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he says, okay, I'm going to tell you the secret. And, you know, when you're 13 or 14, you think there's a secret. Mm-hmm. And so what he said to me, he said, lose a lot. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. And he says, well, you're playing in the 13 and 14-year-old division and you're winning. He said, I want you to go play in the 15, 16-year-old division, 17, 18-year-old division. You're going to lose a lot. He says, and the difference between them and you is power and speed. He says, but if you see that enough, you're going to start adjusting because you're a good athlete. You'll pick up mm-hmm. that speed. He mm-hmm. says, but it's going to take you a little while. and You're going to have to accept the losses. Mm-hmm. He says, but I want you to be humble about the losses. Don't get angry, right? Because you're going to lose. They're supposed to beat you. They're bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. But by the time I started doing that, I then started to be able to win in those higher divisions mm-hmm. because I adjusted to the speed. Mm-hmm. But to me, that was a great, lesson in life yeah. is not afraid of losing. Yeah, it's so true. And I actually find this to be the case. Um, maybe sports is just an easy way for me and maybe others to kind of see those life lessons. Um, but uh, I actually was playing tennis this morning, taking awesome. a, le- a lesson. And, and I was just seeing how important it is for me to have my weight in the right spot, you know, that whenever I'm on my heels, I, you know, will make more mistakes um, sure. or, you know, cough up easy balls for, for somebody to put away. And, and, and it was like, no matter what the shot I'm hitting, forehand, backhand, volleys, serve, doesn't matter. The, the, the body position and the forward kind of strengthening weight position just has a much better result. Uh, what you have to do to get yourself to do that is really trust. You've got to lean in. You know, you've got to take some risk. You know, the reason you you kind of fall back is it's like a little bit of a a hedge. It's a little yep. security, right? And even you know, the same guy was teaching me a little bit about my serve. My friend about you know, I have a serve that you know I, I can spin in a little bit. Well, I, I'm comfortable with the spin in. I, it's it's safer. It's it's right. And he's like you know teaching me that. That that's fine, but it's not going to be as good. It's not as strong. It's not as powerful, right? And that is also true with life. You know, exactly. these are life lessons. You know, this I love is, it. is and, I love and so you know, you, you're you're right. Anyway, you can learn a lot on the court, but but let me let me and 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 you can learn from anything really. But you know, for me, uh, sports have been also a good place to to learn. I don't know. Maybe you want to just comment a little bit more on that. Yeah, just what you were saying. You know, when He's telling you to try to hit different kinds of serves. That's one of the things that I used to teach because I said, you don't know who you're playing against. So you've got to be able to hit different serves. So if you have somebody who literally moves outside the, the, 
the serving area, right, to make you hit to their forehand or backhand, right? They're trying to squeeze you into hitting. Then you'd be able to have a flat serve, right, and just blow it by them, right? Because you're not going to, if you have everything spinning, right, and you're taking them right to where they want to be, that's going to be a disadvantage to you. So those are the kinds of things that I would always teach is, you know, learn to hit more top spin on it, learn to hit a flat serve. You should be able to hit different kinds of shots because serving is so important. The other thing that, and this was really, really a simple thing that I used to tell people, I want you to be able to see their ball, that that ball hit their racket. Because a lot of times we're not looking at that, right? We're trying to get prepared. And I said, if you can watch the ball hit their racket, you're going to be ready to where that ball is going because you'll be able to get very good at noticing what angle they're at, right? Is the racket open? Is it closed, right? What angle are they on when they're hitting the ball? And then all of a sudden you just find that, hey, I knew where the ball was going as soon as they hit it. Mm-hmm. That was really powerful. And be able mm-hmm. to follow that ball I, I got to a point I used to practice something that you, was just a phenomenal thing to do is I could catch the ball on the racket. Mm-hmm. So if they hit, so if I served the ball and they called it out, but they still hit the ball back at me, I could literally take the ball and catch it on the racket mm-hmm. and then go, that was out, you sure? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they'd be looking at me going, did he just catch the ball that I returned on the racket? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I got yeah. that good at being able to see the ball so well that I could time it up with my racket and look like I just sort of caught it on the racket. That's great. Okay, so let, let's talk a little bit because I, I know you've had a whole life ahead, a bit prior to starting Inspired Performance Institute um, yes. and, and quite a full and successful one. Um, and there's a great story which you know we'll... Will, I want you to tell about how you've arrived at your work today. But tell me about kind of the career you had prior to getting into this work. Well, like I said, when I first um, met my wife, her father had a business and I ended up having to go in and help out with that business because there was a whole bunch of problems going on. So I ran that business for about four years um, when we first got married. And that ended up sort of creating a lot of issues because the family, I helped build the business up and made it very successful. I didn't really know what I was doing. So I can't claim that I was some genius that came in and ran it, but I was able to figure out a way to get some products and develop the company. And then I left. They weren't very happy when I left, but I realized I was never going to get what I wanted out of that company. But I did what my, my job was, was to literally save the company and save the family because they would have gone pretty much broke. Then I went into financial services. So I started doing insurance, then I got into mortgages and real estate. And so I added all those services in. And that's what I did right up until we moved to the United States. That was all in Canada. Let me just interrupt you for a second and just ask you, you know, the decision to leave the family business was that one that you would also attribute? You said they weren't very happy about it, but would you attribute your will, your ability to recognize that it wasn't for you and to leave, which sounds like a difficult decision, um, in part to this kind of like confidence or optimism or you know kind of upbringing that you had? Is that a decision that you would say was influenced by? who you had become based on the 
the family unit and life that you had lived up until that point? I agree. I, yeah. Because I had that attitude of optimism, I knew that I could leave that business, even though now it's successful and could be making me more money. I realized I did not want to be under his rule. Even though I was running it, he still could come in and make crazy decisions that could affect my ability to run it. And so we had actually some investors that came in and they were very upset that I was leaving because they said, you know, we realized when we first invested in this company, we thought we were investing in him. And then we realized we're really investing in you. And I said, but I, just, I can't work with him. I can't control him. He's spending crazy amounts of money. And, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. So I didn't want to be responsible. But I also knew that whatever I went into, I felt fairly sure I could be successful at. So, and, and that the four years running his business actually did help me. So mm-hmm. there was definitely something I got from that. So I can't. And again, the best advice I got is my, uh, my brother's best friend who ran the company that uh, my brother worked for said to me, he said, you just have to look at that like an education. Yeah. He said, yeah, great. Well, I, I just think it's important to highlight, you know, just how this kind of way of being that you were raised to be and, and, you know, and, and were because of the family and, and the environment that you're in, the atmospheric conditions, as you call them, that you were in, had you really primed to be able to, you know, continue to make decisions in your career and in your adulthood that, you know, were really um, based on that optimism and that kind of aligned strength that you then had embodied. So I, I interrupted you. I know you were talking about, you know, kind of how you started to build the business um, for yourself with financial services. You know, tell me a little bit more about kind of how that unfolds. Basically, what I did is I wanted to get into financial services. So I started off in the insurance business. I went and worked for one of the big companies so I could learn the business. But I was pretty upfront with them right from the very beginning. I said, I'm going to start my own brokerage. So I won't be here for more than two years. They thought, oh, yeah, sure you will. All right. But that's exactly what I was trying to do. And what I realized, it was I was pretty good, I think, at a, figuring out niches. And what I realized is a lot of the people who were selling at this company, they were good salespeople, but they were terrible prospectors. They didn't know how to market and prospect. And that's what I was really good at. So when I decided to go to my own in my own brokerage, I realized I'm actually not going to be in the insurance business. I'm going to be in the lead generating business. And so that's what I did. That's what really made me successful because I could hire a salesperson and set up their entire week for them. So they didn't have to worry about where they're going to get their next lead. They would have their whole week set up. So people who were probably never been successful working for that big company could be successful with us. And Mm -hmm. so that then led me into doing the same thing in the real estate and mortgage business. And we had a full service company that we could bring people through. And, and then we had a, uh, I ended up with a partner and the partner ended up wanting to buy me out. And so he took me out, which was sort of surprising because we sort of had a shotgun approach. It was like he could offer me and if I didn't accept it, I had to give him that amount. So he ended up making an offer and I was like, all right, I'll take it. I'll go do something mm-hmm. else. Again, mm-hmm. just like you were talking about, there was no fear that I would be able to do something else and be successful at it. Yeah. And, and, and right. I mean, again, I know that this is a theme that, you know, you've been able to access on multiple occasions, especially as we kind of go to the, the next, you know, major shift. But um, what a 
what a beautiful mindset to have where you're in something, you're doing well, you're now taken out of it, and you're not that concerned about you know where things are headed. I mean, I'm sure you had you know a little more money in your pocket at that point, but that's not really the thing that has you um, so kind of I don't know peaceful, right? Right, and yeah, because my wife hasn't gone through this program, I haven't developed this program yet. She was not okay with all of that. That created tremendous stress for her. Yeah, yeah. And and so every time we were going to do something, she would just sit down and write a laundry list of all the things that could go wrong. What's going to happen, you know, when I left her father's business? What's going to happen now that I'm getting into this business? Now we're going to buy a house. Now we're going to move. All those things would create tremendous stress on her. And it made no sense to me because I would say to her, you've got a loving husband. You've got three beautiful children. We have a beautiful home, successful business. You got two nice cars in the driveway. We go on vacation. What isn't to be happy about? That didn't make any sense to me. I didn't understand what she had been dealing with. And that constant loop of, as a child, this gets right back to this childhood. Her childhood told her that life is not secure. Life Mm -hmm. is not safe. So she was always waiting for that shoe to drop. When's it going to fall apart? Because that's what happened with her father. So there'd be times where maybe in business things are going well for him and everybody's happy and, you know, he's spending money like crazy and he's happy and then something goes wrong and then terror reigns again. Mm -hmm. So she was waiting for that because that's what she'd experienced very early in her life. And that's the way her mind designed to protect her. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much it changed, I couldn't fix it. Yeah. And and I know there's another reason why you end up going into this work. And and I'm always really moved and I've seen this happen, you know, with other friends and and people that I've worked with um who in fact I was just sharing a I was just um having this conversation over the weekend with uh, some friends where we have a, a friend who's really found their calling as a therapist later in life. Um it, it's not an uncommon thing um I don't know it, it, within the therapy world. But it still strikes me as pretty significant that people can kind of go from one career to something so very different that requires, in your case, a tremendous amount of schooling and training. I mean, it's such a commitment to you know, become a doctor in this work um, is not an easy thing when you've already kind of lived one life and had one career and established yourself and made money. I mean, go ahead and tell the story about kind of how you decided to make that jump. It really came, I said, from my daughter. My wife was high functioning because if you had met her, you wouldn't have known the things that she was dealing with because she's a great mom, great wife. But underneath the surface, I could see all the, the turmoil. But it wasn't until my daughter developed Crohn's at the age of 14. And then at 16, she disclosed to us she'd had some uh, sexual abuse when she was younger, between the ages of six and eight, that we were unaware of. So the Crohn's, she ended up getting very, very sick. She had four resections done where they had to literally go in and cut out pieces of her intestines. My wife did all kinds of research, couldn't really come up with any answers except they're going to just put her on steroids. 
So my wife, because I was adopted, she said, this must be coming from your family history. You need to figure this out. And so that's what made me decide, I'm going to go back get my PhD. I'm going to research this. And not really necessarily totally connecting up trauma yet to it. But as I started to do my research, go back to get my PhD, that's when I discovered the link between trauma and a lot of health issues, in particular autoimmune issues. So my daughter's Crohn's, I believe, was coming from inflammation that was the result of this looping of her nervous system constantly being dysregulated. She was living in fear. So my wife did the same thing. She has Hashimoto's, which was her thyroid was constantly producing cortisol. So it shows up in different areas for different people. But a lot of autoimmune, IBS, Crohn's, colitis, IBS, all those kinds of things, I believe most situations are being caused because trauma has been looping and is unresolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of research on this subject. You know, I've read a bunch, um, Taming the Tiger and Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Sarno's Mind Body Prescription. You know, there's a lot of research and, and data around uh, the way that our bodies take on um, emotional stress, trauma, et cetera. And yet, it, it still feels like it's kind of seen as like woo-woo or, um, I don't know, not fully adopted in the medical world. Um, and that, you know, things like Crohn's or other kind of inflammatory diseases, you know, often kind of get lumped into a bucket that is like, we don't really know what it is. We're not going to say that it's caused by some sort of emotional event because that doesn't feel, I don't know, maybe medically sound enough. Um, so we give it a name. Um, I mean, tell me a little bit more about kind of your belief on what's really happening, not just um, medically, but kind of in the system that we live in today. Well, the way I sort of explain it is if you're constantly under stress because your mind has experienced a lot of trauma, it's like getting into your car, stepping on the gas, going to put it all the way down to the, the metal, but then using the brakes to keep you going 30. The system is not designed to be stressed out like that. Your fight or flight response is an emergency operating system designed to protect you when there's a threat. What I discovered through my research is that memory keeps activating that nervous system and turning it on when it doesn't need to be turned on. It's because it keeps looping and seeing all that information in real time. So because my daughter was constantly living in this state of fight or flight, that's where it showed up for her, was in her Crohn's. So her system was not okay and stayed in that inflamed state because the purpose of that inflammation was the cells go into a cell danger response to protect the integrity of the cells until the danger passes. But here's the problem. The danger never passed because her mind kept looping through this trauma. So the trauma was active, which kept the inflammation active. It wasn't until we got that trauma resolved, we took her through our program, that her crone stopped. Now, that's the only explanation we have for it. Mm -hmm. Because she had, like I said, 
gone through four operations, got very, very sick. In fact, she, and, and I don't really share this one because this was another one that happened. She also, um, she's an actress. She lived out in California and Hollywood and was doing very well, but kept getting sick with her Crohn's. Ended up losing her SAG insurance. So she went back to Canada because we were dual citizens. So she could use the Canadian system, right, to help with her. She developed something. She ended up having rushed to the hospital because her lungs were filling up with blood. And so they put her in ICU for three weeks, did a battery of tests and came back with, we have no idea what this is, except the only thing we can come up with is something called idiopathic pulmonary hemosiderosis. And what that basically is, it's another autoimmune disorder where the lungs basically just release the blood. The, the immune system just basically attacks itself and it releases the blood. And so she, her lungs would just fill up with blood. She would have choked to death. And they said it only happens in 1.1.2 million people, mm-hmm. but we don't know the cause of it. Mm-hmm. And all we know is that she better live close to a hospital because if she has another attack, she will die before she gets here. So she's living now with this death threat. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do die from that because they don't have an answer. So this is, again, is still before I've developed the program. Mm-hmm. After yeah, we've so- developed it. Yeah, well, it's, I just want to highlight that it's not that these symptoms aren't real, right? And even the kind of diseases that, you know, are named, th- those are very real too. It's just the cause is a bit um, kind of debated, right? And and so, you know, you, you start to attack that by developing your system. You explain a little bit about kind of how you, you, you've had this experience with your daughter. You talk about like making the leap that you're now really going to commit to trying to figure out what's going on here. Well, as my wife said, she says, we're going to, they just told us our daughter's going to end up with a colostomy bag or end up dying because her lungs are going to fill up with blood. So that really put me on a mission to try to find out, you know, what's causing this. Those are symptoms. It's not what she has. It's not, she doesn't, she has Crohn's, but that's a symptom. So what I did is started looking at where are those things coming from? And what I really discovered was trauma. So how do we fix the trauma? Because most people learn to live and manage and cope with it. That's the current system. If you have these issues, we're going to teach you how to meditate. We're going to teach you how to, you know, exercise, do things to calm down your nervous system. But again, that's not fixing the problem. What I discovered through my research is it's that constant dysregulation of the nervous system because the mind is looking at trauma on a routine basis. It's looping. It's on a loop. So something looks like, sounds like, smells like something you've experienced before. It goes into memory and starts looking at it in real time. It's a glitch. Your subconscious mind is fully present in the moment all the time. And it's survival-based. And it's operating about 95% of everything that's going on in your life. So when it accesses that data from five years ago, 10 years ago, because it's looking at memory, when does it actually think the memory is happening? Right now. Right. So it creates a physiological response to what it believes is a current threat, but it's only information about the threat. So now your whole system gets activated. Well, if you keep doing that, you're going to burn something out. And at the same time, the system's going to go into a response to it. And what I always talk about is if you have an emotion, that's a call for an action. The purpose of fear is to escape a threat. 
the purpose of anger is to attack a threat. So if my daughter thought about what happened to her, it would create fear. Mm-hmm. Because what her mind thought was she was being hurt now. Somebody right. was doing something. Now, that's not conscious. That's all subconscious. Right. And so she doesn't know why it's doing that. She just knows that she's getting sick. And that once we got that updated, and that's what we do in our program, is we can take that data and get it to reprocess mm-hmm. so that it stops calling for the action. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and and I've had the um, experience of going through the program, so I understand, you know, kind of how you do that. But maybe you could speak to kind of how you arrived at the techniques that you use and really the program that you put people through. I mean, I understand your path to it now. You've shared that, but the 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 technical side of it. How did you arrive at that? Because it's quite unique from anything that I've experienced before. Well, I started doing a lot of studying of different techniques. You know, there are some different things out there like EMDR, um, Mm -hmm. things that people are using to try to get trauma resolved. And so I studied all of those things, NLP, um, hypnosis, Mm -hmm. all the different things, rapid resolution therapy. And what I did is I sort of looked at it and said, I can improve upon that. I can make Mm -hmm. it even faster. Mm -hmm. And so we take people through a four-hour process. And I believe actually why this is working so effectively is because in that four hours, and as you know, you've experienced it, by the time we're an hour and a half or two hours in, your mind is so relaxed and Mm -hmm. so focused. That's when it's in its optimal restorative state. Mm -hmm. So then when we start looking at the trauma after a couple of hours, and we only do a couple, you know, two or three different events, the mind's able to update it because it's not in that fear response right now. Mm-hmm. So it quickly looks at the data, reprocesses it into that very relaxed state. And that's what fixes it. Mm-hmm. Where if you traditionally go into traditional therapy and you start talking about trauma, your mind is already in a fear state and you now start talking about something that's in a fear state. There's no counter frequency for it. Right? So you're staying in the same state trying to fix something. That's yeah. why it doesn't take so long to fix in traditional mm-hmm. therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I think what you do um, is really, uh, you know, was was really powerful and is. You know, I've I've had that experience again. I really felt like I got a lot out of it. It's still relatively new for me, but um, you know, I felt like there was quite a release and clearing in kind of the experience. And um, I'm curious, like, now what? Where, where do you go with this? I mean, I, I know that you have, you know, your program, you're quite busy doing what you're doing. Is there a way for people, for others to, to learn how to uh, do this work? Or, or, you know, there seems like there's such a need. People are struggling trying to find the different modalities. You know, how, how do you expand upon this work? Well, what I did is, obviously, when I first started, it was one-on-one sessions similar to what you and I did, Brent. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I started saying, I've got to be able to expand this. I can't do this for everybody. And it's very difficult to teach it. Mm Because I've gone to a whole bunch of trainings where people, you know, try to learn a new modality, but they don't spend enough time really learning it. You know, they do enough Mm -hmm. to be able to get through and pass a certification. But the idea was, is... I developed an online version or a digital version of me taking you through it on your own. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, for really mm-hmm. good, high-functioning people, that's very effective. Yeah. Because it's really coming down to, it's you that's fixing it anyway. I'm just yeah. guiding you through it. When we sat there for four hours, it was your mind that was doing all the work. I yeah. was just guiding it. So yeah. the online digital version, even my wife, who's my biggest fan, didn't think it would work. She says, I don't think it's going to be the same you know, yeah. as going through it one-on-one with you, but we're finding it is. Mm-hmm. So Amazing. people are still getting tremendous relief and that's how we scale it. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to be doing now is we're doing some testing with it. We have, uh, I think we have three or four people that are doing facilitating. Mm-hmm. So they'll take people through the digital version because they understand the concepts. And as you watch one of the videos and it stops, then they can ask you, do you have any questions? I think I can clarify. If mm-hmm. not, then we'll move on to the next one. Yeah. And maybe we should just take a couple minutes and kind of describe it maybe. And I don't know how much you're able to kind of share, you know, or how much of it is really necessary just to kind of, you know, experience. But, you know, maybe you could just kind of, Talk a little bit about kind of how you scramble the memories or the, you know, the, the symbol, the, the, the word, you know, maybe you could just explain a little bit more about kind of how it works. Sure. One of the things that when you have a traumatic event, all your senses are heightened. So you're in a very high beta brainwave. So your brain's operating in a beta state and beta is operating at about 15 to 30 hertz or cycles per second. So when you're in a traumatic event, it's taking in a tremendous amount of information and storing this in memory. It's only humans that do that. We're the only ones who store that kind of explicit memory. Animals don't do that. So now you've got this beta memory. And then what we do is I'm able to then get you into an alpha brainwave state, which is operating between 7 and 14 hertz. That's where your mind is super relaxed and super focused. In that state is where your mind can start doing basically reprocessing restorative work because it's feeling safe. So now we have you in an alpha brainwave state and we'll say, and if you remember, I'll say, give me a two-minute, three-minute highlight reel of an experience you had that was traumatic or disturbing. While you're going through that process, we have you in this very, very calm, restorative mindset the mind basically takes all that intensity from that two or three minute memory that's in beta and reprocesses it into alpha. It takes all that intensity out of it and it does it very quickly. So, and there's a couple other things, sort of the techniques that we're using is I'm keeping you present and in the moment, which is if you remember some of the techniques, I'll be having you point out things in the room, Mm -hmm. right? We'll be doing different techniques to keep you in that Mm -hmm. moment. Your mind just updates it. And, and the, generally what I, I'll say is the mind is designed to heal. The body is designed to heal. What's interfering with its ability to heal is it's in a fight or flight state most of the time. And it doesn't want to do maintenance when it's in a stress mode. The only time it wants to do maintenance is when it's in a relaxed mode. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what we do during the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's one of those things that it is kind of helpful to hear the explanation and depending on kind of who you are and how your brain works. Um, I, I kind of also think it's it's one of these things that's like, oh, um, people say this about meditation, you know, it, it's like you don't need to know how it works. You just need to do it. 
right? Like you don't need to, we don't, there's a lot of things we don't know. You know, I, I, I mean, people know, but I don't know how the electricity works or how the plumbing works or right. Like, yep. but, but it works, you know, I press the button, it works. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about what, you, what you're doing. I mean, I have a better understanding of it now, but I don't think you need to, you know, it's just one of these things that works. And you, if you're willing to give it a shot, you know, it, 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 I think it can really be very helpful for people. Yeah, and I do, like I said, in the first hour and a half, two hours, we are talking about the education, the science, because I want you to have at least the conceptual idea that this is not something that can't be fixed. Yeah, This is basically a glitch. We're going to update your computer. Your computer needs to get defragged. Your brain is a computer. And it's got a whole bunch of series of glitches and error messages that came from these experiences. And all we have to do is get updated. You know, one of the things that we try to do on the podcast is really highlight kind of these very different kind of pieces of the puzzle that do all end up seemingly going together and kind of being the thing that people create from and um, and and you know and kind of how you can really bring the things you're personally passionate about into your work and make that your work so that it doesn't really feel like work and and I, I want to just kind of hear your thoughts on uh, how you work today with athletes, you know, knowing that you've had a uh, prior career or passion or love for athletics. You know, this this doesn't have to be something that is for people who have um, horrible trauma. I mean, this is a, this is like, you know, can be beneficial for anybody um, in kind of getting into flow states, you know, whether that's in athletics or in other aspects of, of life. Maybe you could just kind of expand a little bit upon how you can be, how this can be helpful for all kinds of people, including people that are focused on athletics. Well, that's one of the things I love. I love working with athletes, you know, because I'm an athlete as well. So I enjoy that. So I believe what happens is that when you have some of these either emotional concussions or these traumas, that's actually affecting the ATP, the mitochondria and the energy in the cell. So they have another gear. They just can't get to that gear because there's an energy drain. So it's pulling energy. So it's like an open app or an open program on your computer. So I worked with a guy, Rob Killian, who was competing in the Spartan World Championships. And when I met him, he's a Special Forces Green Beret. And obviously he had some trauma from you know, his, his stuff in the military. But the trauma that was really affecting him when he was racing, and again, this wouldn't be considered a big T trauma. But what happened is, is in one of the races, he picked up one of those 50-pound sandbags to run with and it had a hole in it. Now, he didn't know it had a hole in it. And so after the race, one of the competitors called him out on, online and basically called him a cheater. Now, these special forces guys, integrity is everything to them. So now being called a cheater is going to affect him. And so that was one of the things that we had to get updated. So I worked with him on Friday. The, the world championships were on Sunday. There were three guys that were favored to win that world championship. He wasn't one of those three, even though he's a great athlete. Um, so they asked me if I would work with them. So I took him to our program on Friday. He ran in the world championships on Sunday and beat everybody. The closest guy was a minute behind him. Now I didn't make Rob a better athlete. He was always that good. What I did is allowed his mind, right, to get into an optimal flow state by releasing that drain that he had about thinking about what people are thinking about me when I'm running. 
Mm-hmm. Once that was gone, that freed up that little extra power that he needed. He always had it. So I didn't make any, what could I have done in two days? That's what we're all capable of. We all have another gear. We have another ability. And I worked with a lot of athletes, same kind of things who have career world-breaking you know, events. Marco Giacetto became the world record holder for amputees after going through our program. Mm. Lots of stories like that. Mm, that's great. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Wood, I'm a big fan. I really appreciate you taking some time to um, uh, share your journey with our audience and also for having the opportunity to have worked with you. And um, yeah, I just, I just think it's really incredible. I'm probably most moved by the shift that you've made, you know, that you really wanted to dedicate your life to solving this problem after seeing your daughter and, and wife um, you know, struggle and, and, uh, not just the, the, the fact that you did it, but it seems like just the importance of your childhood, um, and making all of these, what otherwise might be very difficult major decisions. And they were for you too, but they were done with grace and ease and, 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 you know, really alignment with who you really are and, and just how powerful, you know, all of this is. I mean, now look at the work that you're doing as a result and look at the impact it's making as a result. It's just a really very, uh, you know, touching for me to kind of hear somebody um, who's who's made those choices over and over again based on, you know, the the love that they had, the conditions, that those atmospheric conditions that they, that you had. And to now be making such an impact is is really uh, a phenomenal story um, that I'm uh, really happy to have had a chance to hear more of today. Well, thank you. And like I said, I give my, my wife and my daughter all the credit because I never would have been doing this. It, it would have never occurred to me to do this because like I said, I just thought everybody should be doing this. Yeah. I just didn't realize how difficult it is for people to get there. All we have to do is just get a reboot done. Just need to yeah. reboot the computer and everybody's capable of living this life. We can live yeah. with that piece. What's interfering with it? That was really what the whole model was built on. Yeah. Great. Well, we're going to wrap up there. I think that's a great final message and we'll make sure to give everybody links to find you and your work and your books. And if there's any other, anything else that you want to just kind of say and, and kind of, you know, final thoughts, um, you know, welcome to hear them. Yeah. Like I said, the first thing I usually say, if you remember, is that there's nothing wrong with anybody. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your mind. Your mind is being affected uniquely by your events and experiences. And so that's what we can get updated. Everybody is capable of doing it. So it's no special you know, ability. We all have that ability to heal, whether it's in our body and our mind. And once we get it updated, it just heals. Wonderful. Dr. Don Wood, Inspired Performance Institute. Great to have you here. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for the Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.